something very cool about music. Music is really cool, even if Eldon's not any good at it. But so he says. You can, you know, it's like you can. I'm, I'm always tempted. I do it all the time. I don't think I'm gonna do it tonight. But to quote a hymn or something, it just isn't the same as singing it, is it? You know, it's something. Uh, also, I don't. I never been. Maybe you you have, but I've never been super touched by just music either. It's like when you bring spoken word in combined with music, it can reach you in a different different way. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think God, I think music is part of God's creation. The angels sing; they'll be singing, rejoicing in heaven seven. So it's not part of our fallen culture; it's part of our creation culture that God is redeeming. But well, that wasn't part of the sermon. Um, we've arrived at uh, John 3, the memorable, popular, you know, often quoted John 3. Um, I don't have a crazy intro tonight, so we're just going to go to God's Word, trust in Him to feed us as His sheep. John 3, we'll read 1 through 15, just take that sort of division and know that we're not going to finish it tonight. Um, let's stand, because we want to honor God with our attention. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Maybe seated. Father, we pray for your blessing on your word as we read it and divide it. We pray that you would uh, allow us to rightly understand, apply, and be transformed by it. We, we don't want to be conformed to this world, but we want to be transformed into the image of Jesus by the renewal of our minds, which comes through things like tonight. So take John 3, renew our minds, wash us from our sin, wash us from our false ways of thinking, our, our, our false worldview, and renew in us the mind of Christ. Amen. So don't be mad at me, as I said, if, we don't, if, we, if you're like, man, he skipped the good stuff. Because week two coming um, tonight, our story is mainly the story of Nicodemus, and we meet him three times in the Gospel of John. 
here in chapter 3. We're going to see him again at the end of chapter 7, where he's, without going into it, he's sort of defending, sort of sticking up for, he's rooting for Jesus almost, get, trying to get the, the other rulers to give Jesus a chance. And then we see him again in John 19, when he goes with Joseph of Arimathea, when Joseph goes to take Jesus' body off the cross, it says Nicodemus goes with him. That's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, so, I thought, although I, I'm going to say lots of negative things about Nicodemus tonight, but we should keep in mind, and we'll get there, Lord willing, as we move through John, this first encounter with him is not a good one. He's not coming from a good perspective. But this seems to have had a profound impact on his life, probably an eternal impact. Um, so we'll just keep that in mind, saving one. I really hate being up so high when there's like seven of you. It just feels very awkward. I should come down. I could. Why not? Well, I can't. This is my corner. Um, all right, let's jump in like this. John tells us, uh, oh, he tells us lots of things about Nicodemus, but, but four interesting contextual historical things. He was a Pharisee. Well, he's a man. I guess take that one. But he's a Pharisee. He's a ruler. He's a teacher. And he believes in Jesus in the John 2.23 sense that we talked about last week. In air quotes. He believes in Jesus like those who didn't really believe in Jesus. So, he's a ruler, a Pharisee, a teacher, and he believes in a believing but not really believing sense. Being a Pharisee was a lot like being Southern Baptist with a little bit of republicanism thrown in. Um, to, and I'll have to explain that. I, I didn't think about it. That would be funny. It is funny now I think about it. But I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> to be a Pharisee was to be part of an unofficial club, I guess, a group of men. You had to be a man to be a Pharisee who had similar theology and a similar understanding of Scripture and they were, they were committed, they were united by their vision for the country. Um, so, sort of like a denomination is why I made the connection to Southern Baptist. But it was a little bit loose. It wasn't like Catholicism where it was official entrance. It was kind of loose affiliation. So, because the New Testament and Jesus regularly attacked the Pharisees, we have an incredibly negative view of them and connotation of Pharisees. But, in perspective, we should understand that, I mean, relatively speaking, the Pharisees aren't the, the wickedest of the wicked. Um, their whole purpose was to bring back the law of God, to see people take Scripture seriously and commit themselves to living for God's glory. That was good. In a day when most people were couldn't care less about the law of God anymore. So that drive was good. Now, did they do it the right way? No. Was their theology whole? No. But their desire to, to bring back the supremacy of God in all things was, was good. At a time when, when people were careless in their walk with God, it, was, um, it might be compared to, to modern day American Christianity in that, that most people were Israelites by nationality and worldview, not by how they actually lived. They're just, yeah, we're Israelites, you know, we're not at the heart level. And the Pharisees wanted to change that. They were labeled as fundamentalists, as extremists, and it's for that reason they were a minority in the religious leadership of the day. Nicodemus was one of these men. He was a Pharisee. At that time, Rome was in control, of course, of Palestine, what we call Israel. And the Roman Caesars had 
split up Israel. It wasn't Israel anymore, officially. They split it up into three territories. Um, Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. And because the Romans were, were incredibly wise at the art of war and the art of dominion, they, they also they, they appointed their own governors to rule over those territories. But they wisely allowed those locals to stay there and still be in some level of control and charge. So like, we're not going to come in and micromanage you. We're going to macromanage you at the high level and you take care of all the details and stuff that we don't really care about. So in Israel, that meant, in Judea particularly, that meant the Sanhedrin. They allowed the Sanhedrin to be a religious council of locals, Israelites, Jews, to be a real council with real authority, but just not the ultimate authority. They couldn't do certain things like execute a person. They couldn't make certain taxation decisions and things like that, but they had religious control. <clears throat> Think of them as the Senate. They were, like, they were kind of like a Senate. Um, they exercised a great deal of influence. So the Sanhedrin, a group of Jewish men appointed to oversee religious matters and especially to voice their opinions on all kinds of matters to the governor. That's why, of course, in Jesus, during Jesus' trial, he first goes to the Sanhedrin, the council. They find him guilty. They can't put him to death. They take him to the next level of authority, to Pontius Pilate, who lets them do what they want. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a man who aligns himself with the party and denomination of Pharisees, and he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a council member. Okay? He's like a senator, kind of. He's a prominent Southern Baptist senator, is I think a close equivalent today. That's interesting, just like it would be today. It's kind of interesting because there aren't very many Pharisees on the Sanhedrin at this time. Mostly they were Sadducees. But he's one of the few. So from a worldly perspective, the man who came to Jesus by night was a powerful man. He was a very, very influential man. He wasn't just a guy off the street. This is a leader, a political national leader, who, in my opinion, I'll argue this in a second, comes to Jesus as a sort of representative of those parties. I think that's the, the spirit in which he comes to Jesus. You'll notice he says, we know. We know. Who's we? Well, John just told us. He just said, all right, there's a man named Nicodemus. He's a, he's a ruler. He's a Pharisee. This man came to Jesus by night and says, we know. The first words out of his mouth are, we know. So who's the we? Well, it's, I just told you, Sanhedrin, which is a ruler of the Jews, and a Pharisee. And he opens his mouth with we. So he's speaking sort of on behalf of the represented parties. Did they send him? I don't know if they sent him or what that was all about. But And he also comes as a teacher or rabbi, the Greek says. So in verse 10, Jesus says, Are you a rabbi of Israel, a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? And that makes sense, given that he's both a Pharisee and a Sanhedrin council member. He's also an ordained pastor. Um, they called them rabbis. In, in the first century, you don't just become a rabbi, you get ordained as a rabbi. So it's a really interesting story. It's a very interesting character who comes to Jesus. And it makes sense that John would take so much time to, to unfold for us what happened when this pastor, ordained pastor, denominational leader, political senator comes to Jesus as a representative and, and questions him. And this becomes even more important once the story unfolds. He comes to Jesus by night, as every preacher has been faithful to point out, right? Um, because he doesn't want to be seen, apparently. 
And he starts this interchange out, and I think that makes even more sense, not, a lot of people have said, because he's a sin, he'd remember, he didn't want to be seen. But I think it's actually, they didn't want to be openly seen associating privately with Jesus. And he starts out this interchange by saying, let me try to get the spirit of this right. Look, Jesus, let's just be real for a minute. We get it. We, we get it. We understand that God is with you, right? We all know that you're legitimate. Which is amazing that the religious powers that be early on in Jesus' ministry, according to Nicodemus, had an awareness, a belief that Jesus was, was sent by God. Of course, they don't understand that in its fullness, but, but here anyway, they don't say, we know that you are a Satan-empowered, demon-possessed, false prophet. They say, we know that you are sent from God. But you can almost hear Nicodemus following that up with, but can you just lay off some of the radical extremism? Then we might be willing to acknowledge you. We know you're from God, but we can't put up with some of the things you're saying and teaching and doing. For goodness sake, you just came in and disrupted our entire temple procedure, like a madman, crazy man. So can we can we maybe reach a compromise? Can we talk you down just to look like put a restraint on you a little bit, and then we can maybe work together? I think that's the role Nicodemus is playing in John three, like a negotiator, a conciliatory mediator between two opposing parties. Think about a union or something. And he starts it out by saying, like any good facilitator does, look guys, we're all on the same team here, right? We're all on the same team. Can we work together and we'll, we'll make this thing work? That's the spirit in which he comes. Unfortunately for him, Jesus interrupts before he can finish. Jesus, verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2, Jesus on his part, knowing what's in man and having no need for anyone to tell him, he knows what's in Nicodemus. He knows the heart that Nicodemus is coming with. He interrupts him. And as Jesus makes clear, Nicodemus' belief is that of John 2.23. We see the signs that you've done. We believe in you, Jesus. But Jesus says, "Um, actually you don't. You believe what you don't believe. And the reason is, you can't see the kingdom of God. Yes, you see the signs and you believe something about them. But you don't see what the signs are pointing to. We, we went back, last week we talked about signs, the railroad sign no, tells you there's a railroad coming. I see the sign, but I drive up and I, there's no railroad crossing. I just see a sign. That's, that's what he, he saw, a miracle. He's like, wow, that was a miracle. But he didn't see what the miracle was about. He didn't see what was behind the miracle. He didn't see the glory and power that the, that the miracle was manifesting. Why? Because Nicodemus, you're not born again. Sort of as an aside, real quick, I'm going to use the phrase born again instead of born from above tonight because I think that makes more sense here. Um, you'll notice we don't have the Aramaic transcript, which this would have been Aramaic probably, of what Jesus said to Nicodemus. We have a Greek translation, and the Greek word can mean from above or again, born again or born from above. It can mean either one of those things. But in Aramaic, they're having this conversation. Jesus says, you have to be born again or anew. And Nicodemus says, what? Am I supposed to go back to my mom's womb? So how did Nicodemus understand what Jesus said? He understood it as born a second time. Born again. He didn't say, do I have to go up into heaven and come back down? 
He said, do I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born once more? So he hears Jesus say, born a second time. I think that's probably more accurate. So I'm going to stick with born again. Now, Jesus launches now into the most popular biblical expression of being born again. And even though you've heard 40 sermons, or maybe you've heard 100, maybe you've preached 100 sermons about it in your lifetime, I don't know, but we are going to try and take our time and look at this text on biblical regeneration. Biblical being born again, regeneration. And just, just quickly, because we'll talk about this again over and over, but born again and regeneration are interchangeable. Those are... Are you... No, I won't do that. I'll embarrass you. But, um, all right. Regeneration is just really sort of the technical word for being born again, right? To generate is Latin for create. Uh, if you have a generator, when the electricity goes out, it's creating electricity. The old cars, they have alternators now, but they used to have generators. And the, they converted the power of the engine into creating electricity. So generate is create. Re is the Latin prefix for again or over. So regenerate just literally means recreated, created again. They're synonymous with born again. It's like a myocardial, wait, what is it? Myocardiac infarction. It's hard to say. Infarction. The first time you're in the hospital and you hear a doctor say myocardiac infarction, you think he's talking about eating bad Chinese food or something. (laughs) Um, Of course, myocardial infarction is just a fancy word for heart attack. Um, they refer to the exact same thing. One is the technical term and one is the everybody else's term. That's what it is. Born again, regeneration, same thing, one's more technical than the other. In this text, Jesus teaches Nicodemus and John teaches us three wonderful truths about regeneration, about being born again. I'm going to label them like this. The regeneration mystery, the regeneration mandate, and the regeneration mechanism. Okay. Regeneration, mystery, mandate, and mechanism. And those are the three things, three headings we're going to work through. First, the regeneration mechanism. Don't you hate it? When I, during the summer, spring, and allergy season, I often get this itch that's neither in my ear or in my throat, but somewhere right in between. And it's completely inaccessible to me from both directions. Amen. So, the regeneration mystery. Regeneration, being born again, is... I'm going to stop saying those two words, so I think we're on the same page now. Regeneration is mysterious. Now, mysterious in a biblical sense. I don't... When I, if, if Dennis or, or I use the word, it's a mystery, that doesn't mean this is something we can't understand. It's not what mystery means in the Bible. That's what it means today popularly. Like, this is, it's sort of up here in the nether realms that we can't get our hands around. That's not what the Bible means when it says mystery. It's like, we say it's a mystery meaning we can't understand it, let's not even try. That's not Bible. Um, rather, mystery in the Bible means it doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand it. We don't know it unless it's revealed to us. That's a mystery. So I'll say that again. I think it's important, especially in Ephesians. Mystery does not mean we don't or can't understand it. It means we wouldn't understand it unless God and or till God reveals it to us. Regeneration, brethren, is a mystery. Not something we would understand 
or could understand, apart from God's revealed word, which allows us to understand it, at least in measure. Because it's a mystery, the scripture reveals this mystery to us using metaphors. Metaphors for regeneration. Like, uh, okay, let's ask the Bible, what is regeneration? The Bible says, well, it's like being born a second time. It's like, it's not being born a second time. No, Nicodemus, you don't need to go find your mom. It's like being born again. It's like a new creation, 2 Corinthians. It's like getting a new heart, Ezekiel. Regeneration is like going from being dead to being alive. Those, and there's others, but those are all four metaphors for like revealing to us the mystery which we didn't understand, but now the scripture is helping us to understand it. But what's clear about regeneration, unfortunately, is that we do not have an exact word for what happens to us when we're regenerated in our English language. There is not a one word, aside from a word that we create, like born again, a phrase we create, born again or regeneration, there's not a word that explains it or captures it in English, Greek, Hebrew, or any other language. Um, what happens to us when something changes in us and we can now enter the kingdom of God and we can now see the kingdom of God? And the reason for that is very simple. The reason we don't have a word for that is simple. It doesn't exist outside of this one thing. That's the tent. People are not regenerated anywhere else in any other realm or subject matter. Cars don't get regenerated. Horses don't get regenerated. People don't get regenerated except in this one instance in the gospel. That's it. Now you might not think that because Americans love to use the phrase born thanks to Chuck Colson, we love to use the phrase all the time now. Like this you know, you read a media piece, this this band has just been born again and what they mean is they've just rebranded themselves or they've just reconstituted themselves, or you might hear Greece is gonna to have to be born again, meaning they're gonna to have to dissolve their leadership structure and come back together and get an entirely new philosophy of government and all that. That's any popular usage that you hear of born again apart from the gospel, is a different category altogether. It's not with the Bible. There's no overlap there in what happens to us and what's happening to a band, right? This concept, we don't, we don't have a category for what happens to us because it happens nowhere else. And so the Bible uses metaphors. It's kind of like what happens when you do this, the Bible tells us. See, we can call God our Father because we have fathers. Because we have a word for father and a category for father. And so God says, yeah, I'm your father. Or we can call the Holy Spirit a spirit, or God the Holy Spirit a spirit, because we understand spirits. There are other spirits. We have a category and a word for spirits. Just like love. God is love. We love each other. I love my kids. I have a category and a word for love. So the problem is when it comes to regeneration, that's not true. It doesn't exist anywhere else. We don't have a category. It's a unique action. And so, what's God supposed to call it? There isn't a word for it in our vocabulary. That's why he gives us metaphors. That's why he says, it's like what happens to you when... Regeneration is like what happens when a person's born again, except he's older now, and no, you don't enter the womb again. Regeneration is like what would happen if a dead person came back to life, except it's forever, 
and you're not physically dead, and you're not in a tomb, and you're not in a grave, and your heart was already beating. See, these metaphors are weak in themselves. Regeneration is like getting a new heart, except it really has nothing to do with the organ that's beating in your chest. Metaphor, metaphor, metaphor. Except I do have to mention my brother Shane Crom, since most of you probably know him. Um, Mark Backus and I, Shane is the pastor of Emmanuel, you know, but... Um, he used to pat, he pastored the church that I pastored before I did for 18 and a half years. So we had a good relationship. And a couple of years ago, he went in. He had uh, some heart problems. He went in for uh, something bypass, quadruple bypass. I don't know what it was. Some kind of bypass surgery. And when I went to visit the hospital, the first I shook his hand and said, "So, did you invite Jesus back into your heart?" Yes. <laughs> and he didn't answer. Um, so. I think we've seen pictures and children's curriculum that seems to miss the point that these are not equations of regeneration. They are just metaphors. They're just pick word pictures. of You don't invite Jesus into your heart in any sort of physical sense. So it's a mystery in that sense. It's a mystery in that we have no category for regeneration. We don't have comparisons. And that's part of the reason Nicodemus doesn't get it. If you go to a remote tribe in East Asia who's never heard of Jesus, never heard the gospel, and you tell them, hey guys, in order to see the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of God, you know what you need to do? You need to be born again. What's the reaction going to be? It's going to be at least as marveling and awkward as Nicodemus's is. It doesn't make any sense. And I, the reason I go through all this, I think if we as a society weren't such fuzzy thinkers, I think we would have more problems with this than we do, in a good way. We we, we wouldn't we would see, see, say no that's weird that's mysterious I need to see what the Bible says about that and try to figure it out because born again is now part of our vernacular it's been part of our my English language since I was born I, I mean I know I, I feel like it's probably been part of all of yours as well uh, I know it had a resurgence in the seventies but. We just take it for granted, born again. Yeah, we understand that. But if you ask John Q. Public, what does it mean that a Christian is born again when he repents and trusts in Christ? Explain that to me. What does that mean? How does that happen? What has changed in him? You're going to get as many different answers as people that you asked, aren't you? Because we, we don't think deeply about these things. We live, I think we live in a time where people love sayings that don't make any sense. Drives me nuts. I mean, I'm an intensely practical thinker. And I'm not crazy about poetry. I hate mushy one-liners that sound nice but don't say anything. Just for fun, I googled this, by the way. Like, I forget what I googled. It was something like one-liners that you know, mushy one-liners that don't make any sense or something like that. I got open confusion is good for the soul. I'm just like, what, what does that mean? Or if you really want some terrible ones, Google yoga sayings. Okay. Here's one. Quote, Pour one breath into the other, out-breath into the in-breath, into the out-breath. Be there in the harmony of that fusion where one rhythm turns into the other. Awaken into equilibrium. Tending to breathe in this way, become capable of experiencing one, of experiencing oneness with the self. If that says anything, I'm too dumb to know what it says, but... That what the reason I'm saying is that's the sort of thing that we would put on a motivational poster and hang on our walls. I mean, I can see this. 
I can see a black framed picture with a black and white mountainscape with fog and the little motivational saying underneath it that said, be there in the harmony of fusion where one rhythm turns into the other and awaken into equilibrium. We pass by and be like, ooh, that's good right there. Yeah. So here's the point. Let's, let's not be as a church the people who tout silly one-liners or hang up posters that say something we don't understand and can't articulate, much less defend from Scripture. And the point I'm trying to make, I think I got massively sidetracked, is that we too easily gloss over words. Like, um, I, I really um, have tried to work with my family on this because we're just like everybody else. We'll read scripture and like, okay, it's time to read scripture. Okay, we read it. Okay, good. But wh- what did it say? Because <laughs> there's a sentence in there that I have no idea what that means. Are we willing to think about it? And, you know... What in the world does it mean to be born again? What does that mean? Think about it. Mull over it. Be be able to chew on Scripture. Be comfortable taking one paragraph as an hour devotional for your day, or 30-minute devotional. Force yourself to do that. You know, the Hebrew word for meditate is to speak in lulling tones to yourself over and over. Now, don't think yoga meditation. It's... It's rather the idea of a man sitting there saying, born again, born again, born again. You know, just kind of like a cow chewing the grass over and over. That's what you do when you meditate on Scripture. And hopefully that's what we're going to do the rest of our time tonight and next time. So it's mysterious in that sense, but it's also mysterious in another sense. We're talking about the regeneration mystery. This will come back in the third point, so I'll just jump through it. But... Regeneration is mysterious because when it happens, it's, it's like you were sitting on your patio and the sky is clear and it's not windy and it's just a nice, beautiful you know, fall, summer day and all of a sudden, a tornado comes rushing through your backyard. And you're like, where did that come from? What in the world? Where, I didn't see that coming. I didn't hear it coming. There weren't clouds in the sky. I said, oh, there's a tornado coming or a siren's going off. It's just like, bam! Jesus says that's kind of how regeneration is when it comes up on a person. And so that, in that sense, it's mysterious. Okay? Because you don't see where it's coming, when it's coming, you don't see signs, etc. It's not, being born again is not a chemistry formula that you can write up on a chalkboard and say, here's how it happens. One, two, three, four, five. It's not a formula. It's, it's a mystery that only God can reveal. So it, Regeneration mystery. That's number one. Number two, and this is the only other point tonight, the regeneration mandate. Oh, have you guys ever seen Braveheart? The back table has... It's a cool table back there. That's got to be my... Have you guys seen Braveheart? Oh, you been a long time. Okay. Huh? Oh, good. Everybody's seen it. Okay. It's definitely one of the top five guy movies of all time. No, don't even argue with me. <laughs> Amazing movie with tons of sermon illustrations. Back in the day, uh, my, my friends used to have a running joke to see if I could make it through a sermon without referencing Braveheart somehow. Um, anyway, one of, the, one of the key figures historically in the movie Braveheart, remember about the control England had over Scotland and... Um, Scotland trying to win back their freedom, William Wallace, etc. William Wallace is Mr. Braveheart. Um, one of the key figures there is Robert the Bruce. 
And Robert the Bruce, in that day, uh, Scotland was ruled by lords, and the king of England ruled over those local lords. So it's kind of like, actually, the Palestine situation we just talked about. You have the king of England ruling over locally placed lords in Scotland. But Robert the Bruce, who was himself a powerful lord, was actually the, the last descendant of the last king of Scotland. So he was the rightful heir to the throne of Scotland, should Scotland ever win back their freedom. And that's what he and his father were hoping for would happen someday. So the Bruces were politicians. When William Wallace, just this regular working class man, basically started a popular revolution against England, started fighting for Scotland, he became a popular hero all across the country. And naturally, Robert the Bruce tried to treat him with kit gloves. He wanted to play both sides. He wanted to support Wallace and, you know, try to, to be there for him. At the same time, he wanted to stand with the Lord and stand with, with the King of England. So he tried to get Wallace to become political and take a side. He, he tried to get them, him to join them and compromise and simmer down. And if Wallace would do that, if he would just kind of take a side and become like one of the rest of us, maybe we can work something out and you can, be, you can you know, begin to have a position of leadership and power and influence. In other words, he didn't want Wallace disrupting things. And Wallace's response to that is shocking to them. I'm not interested in being part of your army and fighting with you or for you. Now, if you will fight for Scotland, then I will fight with you. But I'm never fighting for you. Robert the Bruce is Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes, and we're talking about the regeneration mandate now. Nicodemus comes saying, Okay, Jesus, so, so you want to be king. All right? You want to be king. You want to be the Messiah. Well, let's talk about that. Work with us. Work with us. Maybe we can work something out. Maybe we can work together. Maybe we can help you with your political aspirations. Maybe you can join us. That's Nicodemus' mindset. Jesus responds saying, Nicodemus, there is something so wrong about you at this moment that you cannot, you cannot and will not enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, if we work together, we might let you into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you can't even see, much less enter the kingdom of God. Shocking statement for Nicodemus. Not what he was expecting to hear. I'm sure it put him on the defensive. That's, a, that's an offensive statement. He thought he was the wise, powerful, good guy here. He walked into this meeting thinking he was the one with power, he was the one with influence, that he was the one who might possibly let Jesus play a role in the kingdom of God. Jesus comes back with the complete opposite. Nicodemus, you're not in any position to let anyone into the kingdom because you're not in it yourself. And to get in it would require something to happen to you that's so crazy you can't even understand it when I tell it to you. Verse 7, you must be born again. You, Nicodemus, must be born again. Whoa. That's not what I thought he was going to say. Nicodemus is thinking to himself. Nicodemus thought there was something wrong with Jesus and his relationship to the council, and now he's just heard there's something wrong with him. And apparently he's quite befuddled, as you can imagine, confused, maybe even angry. Verse 7, Jesus says that he's marveling at this statement. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He's marveling. Marveling can mean astonished, surprised, taken aback, shaken. What's wrong with Nicodemus is very serious. According to Jesus, Nicodemus was in a position 
where he could not enter God's kingdom. Now, that, of course, is terrible news. He can't enter God's kingdom. That's terrible news. I mean, that's so worn on us that that doesn't sound terrible to you. But Jesus has just laid news on him. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. As a Pharisee, the one single life passion he had was to be a part in bringing that kingdom of God to Israel. Bringing it back. To see it restored. To see people coming into it and repenting and to see God's glory. That was his life's passion. And suddenly in a moment, just dashed. You cannot enter. Made me think about, well, made me think about another movie, but instead of that, what, what would it be like for me and my family if we decided to go on a trip to Disney World in Florida? And we, we played it up for months like we do. We tell Corbin, like when we're going to go trail riding, we just totally played it up. And for weeks we were telling him what we are going to do. And we started reading cowboy books and getting him cowboy stuff and just getting him excited because that makes the trip a whole lot more fun. Um, and then we drive the 18 hours there and he's talking about it the whole time. And we're putting up with crying babies and paying money and we spend $4,000 in gas to drive our Durango there. And the kids are screaming and they're screaming and it's frustrating and it's just tiresome and I drive through the middle of the night so we can get there. But it's worth it because we're almost there. We're going to be at Disney World and the kids are going to have the delight of their lives. And we get there 18 hours later and there's a blockade in the road closed for maintenance. The disappointment would be almost unbearable. (laughs) We'd have to come up with something quick, right? I mean, that would be unbearable. There was... A couple of weeks ago, or a couple of months ago now, I guess, Je- Je- Jessica was supposed to take Corbin and Eden to go see their cousin, my brother, and his children at the lake. And they started on their way, and they were so excited, and they called and said, you can't come because we're sick. So they had to turn around. And I mean, it was just like, oh, that's all we heard about. When are we going to see Jocelyn? When are we going to see Jocelyn? But we're talking about a trip to Disney World. But actually, we're not talking about a trip to Disney World. We're talking about the purpose of life. I mean, the, the reason that Nicodemus had breath in his lungs, the reason the blood was flowing through his veins, you cannot enter. And Nicodemus, like all of us, would have said, okay, Jesus, just tell me, what do I have to do? If I'm not in, what do I have to do to get in? Do I have to make a campaign contribution to your political aspirations? Do I have to get a new passport? Do I have to come back next month because it's all full? To which Jesus says, no, you need to be born again. So set aside your Christian upbringing and your understanding of that for a second and just realize how ridiculous of a statement that is. I completely understand Nicodemus' marveling and frustration. Well, that's it then. I mean, I'm not in on yes, that's I can't do that, right? That's it. It's, I have no hope. If I held up in front of your face the thing that you longed for your entire life, the thing that you worked for day in and day out, the thing you saved your money for, the thing that you cried for, the thing that you wished for and daydreamed for, I said, here, this is not yours, and you cannot have this. And you said, well, tell me, what, how can I get it? And what do I have to do to get it? I said, well, actually, there is one way. It's just one small little thing. You, need, you remember 30 years ago or 50 years ago or 60 years ago when you were born? Now, go back to the hospital and do that again. That's how Nicodemus hears that statement. And you say, well, fine. That's it. There's no hope. And unfortunately, as terrible as it is, as terrible as that news is, to tell Nicodemus that he cannot enter the kingdom of God, Jesus also tells him, you can't even see it. 
You can't even see it. Verse 5, you cannot enter. Verse 3, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. As I thought about not being able to enter that place that Nicodemus daydreamed about every day, I, I couldn't help but think about Moses. I love Moses. You remember the story? Moses was given so much in the revelation of God. He, he communicated with God directly on numerous occasions, sometimes for long periods of time, such that his face glowed with God's glory. He got a, he got a one-of-a-kind sneak peek at the hind parts of God's glory, whatever that means. But there were still a few times that Moses lost his temper, was a little short with God's people, and didn't fully obey God's complete commands. And one such occasion, the one that we hear about, was when God told him to command a rock to bring forth water to nourish the people, the thirsty Israelites. He's a little frustrated. He's done it before, so he does it again. Instead of speaking, he uses his staff and strikes the rock. Then it works, and God gives them water. But then God says, because of your disobedience, you are now not going to enter the promised land. What kind of day was that for Moses, you think, when God said that? I mean, just understand what that must have felt like for him. How crushing that would be. When it came time in Deuteronomy 34, for the people to finally enter and cross the Jordan and take the promised land, Moses' job is done. And God says, that's it for you, bud. Go up the mountain. He goes up Mount Nebo to the top to Pisgah. <clears throat> and God said, look out there. You can see it. He gave him a glimpse. Clear day, I guess, where you could see over the land of Israel. And see, that's the land that I'm going to give you. And he got to soak it in. And he died there on the mountain, never having stepped foot into the land that he had risked his life for time and time again. I mean, he had risked his life for it. He wandered in the wilderness... 40 years to bring the people there. He crossed a sea. He one-on-one challenged the most powerful king on the planet and he put up with millions of whiners day in and day out to get here. I see it. That's it, Moses. And he died. You can't go in. But at least he got to see it. Right? That's like the one sort of redeeming thing about that passage we reassure ourselves and say, well, at least he got to see it. There's another one that I think it's really awesome, amazing, precious that God is said to have buried him as well. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a very beautiful picture for me. But, but anyway, you're like, well, at least he got to see it, right? But for those who are born into this world just once, not only is the promised land closed and an insurmountable barrier put in the way, but you can't even look at it. There's no mountain you can climb up to see it and, and behold it. In fact, in Nicodemus' case, the kingdom of God could be standing right in front of you. The kingdom of God, the, the king could be opening his mouth and you could be looking at his eyeballs and hearing the words from his mouth and you can't see it. You see a person, but not the king. You see a person, but not the glory. It's terrible news. God, God uh, blessed me this week with an opportunity to speak to a guy yesterday that I work with and uh, it was a very, it was just a really cool providential encounter. He just jumped into this conversation with um, the fact that there's, there is no sin. There's, the only sin is intolerance. There's no need for anybody to be forgiven. And as long as you're on a path and you're nice to the people, that all roads lead to heaven. And uh, you know, as I, 
It was interesting to talk to somebody like that, because as a pastor, I'd preach about it, but nobody in my church believed that. They didn't really interact. So now I'm in the workplace and meet real people who actually believe the stuff that I hear people believe. And um, to interact with him and just, just to think, I mean, I'm sitting there and my friend and I, we're telling him about the resurrection and telling him about this God who's revealed himself. And I just see, it's like we're taking the glory and saying, look, look at the glory here. Jesus rose. He's God. He's King. He's calling you to repent. i got to go back inside and work on my computer. You know? It's terrible. The glory of God is right in front of your face and you cannot even see it. And unfortunately, we're still not quite done with the bad news because Jesus, of course, isn't just talking to Nicodemus about Nicodemus. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. He says, unless one is born again, generically. Just a person. If a person isn't born again, they will never enter and never see the kingdom. Have you heard of the sine qua non Latin? It was a, it's a phrase that, that gets used a lot in books and stuff. It's, it was a, originally a Latin legal condition, which meant a condition without which something could not be. All right. So, Or, it's, it literally means without which there is nothing. So if something is the sine qua non, it means if you take away this one thing, you lose it all. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe I think about, remember that game where you had marble stacked in a column and there were sticks that you pulled out and then Eventually the marbles would fall, something like that. It's like the last stick. If you take that one, there's one stick. If you take it out, it all crushes. It all goes down. And that's, that's, that's the sine qua non. It could be a premise in an argument or something. Well, according to Jesus, regeneration is, is the sine qua non. Meaning, <clears throat> if you are a person, then your sine qua non, the thing without which there's nothing for you, is rebirth. Regeneration. That's it. If you have it, you have everything. If you take it away, you have nothing. You have nothing. It's a sine qua non. Just turn to Numbers 21.4 with me real briefly. This is the wanderings, right? They're wandering the wilderness. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Speaking of the manna. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The Israelites despised God. They said they loathed this worthless food that God had given them. 
They denied the goodness of God and its purposes for them. They say, what, you bring us out here just to starve God? Oh no, I brought you out here to redeem you. Sorry, but you brought us out here because you're a malicious God? You hate us? You didn't want us to live in Egypt so you brought us out here to kill us? To lead a worthless, miserable life? So they're doubting God's goodness. And so God, well it's not sugarcoated, God comes to kill them. But of course they pray, they repent of their sin, they ask for God's grace. And he responds by giving them a snake on a pole, a casting of a snake on a pole, that could be lifted up high, set on the stake, high, for everybody to see. And if someone would look up at that snake believingly, wasn't magic, but if they would look upon it believingly, trusting God said, if I look, I'll, I'll live. So if they look with that heart, it's not just like you glance and, oh, you're saved. It's you look, trusting, God said, if I look, I'll live. So I look and I trust. I trust that God will do what he said. I trust he's good. I trust he's not a liar. Then he would give them life and they would be saved. God did all of that. God arranged that. I'll say God ordained that. I'm okay with that. As a picture before its time of Jesus. A pre-picture. A type of Christ. So back to John 3. Jesus says in verse 14, I am that bronze serpent lifted up for all to look upon. And whoever looks upon me when I am lifted up, whoever looks believingly, shall be saved. And so, unfortunately, we have to save the the nice, glorious part of this text for later on. But for now, we consider in about three minutes the implications of that. He's already said, unless you are born again, you're dead. It's the sine qua non. You're dead. You have nothing. Meaning, being born into this world the first time around means being born, you come out of the womb bitten by the poisonous snake of sin. You're already infected by the deadly sin of Adam. Everyone, we're infected. We're bit. We're dying. We're diseased. Nicodemus walked into Jesus' room that night thinking he was the healthy one. What he didn't realize was he had a cancerous infection that was, whatever. He had an infection that was killing him. He was a walking dead man. Already affected by the, the worst plague the world's ever seen, the sin and death we've inherited from our father Adam. And like every disease and infection, this sin infection we have has symptoms. Jesus already told us what they are. There are symptoms that we have this sin infection that's killing us. You know, when you see a man walking down the street with those big black glasses on, you guys don't wear those glasses, do you? They have big black glasses on, and uh, somebody with a walking cane, you you know what? He's blind. That's a symptom of blindness. What are the symptoms of this poisonous, deadly snake bite that is the, the, the endemic sin that's imputed to us? Well, two things. Oh, lots of things, but two things here. Number one, the inability to enter the kingdom of God. That's a symptom. We are immobile, the Bible tells us. Paul says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We're like a derailed train. There's the tracks right over there that we need to be on. But there's nothing we can do once derailed to retrack ourselves. We're a train that got derailed. And there's the promised land, there's the kingdom of God, and we're shut out. And being shut out is to be shut out of the marriage feast of the Lamb forever. It's like the city gates are closed and they're padlocked for eternity. And and just to grasp it, you know, it's real. The, the, The fires of hell burn bright 
and, and the worms forever try to eat. Just, just keep on eating. It's like, you, you know, if you die, it's a gruesome picture, but Jesus said it. When we die and get buried, eventually the worms, the, the creatures are going to come and help decompose our body, but that's going to stop after a little while because there's nothing left to, to consume, right? But Jesus says the worm never dies. Meaning it's like it's continually being consumed by death. Continually, continually, forever. And the darkness is overwhelming. And we're, it's eating, eating us. But the city of God, that is the kingdom of God, is there and it's closed. And it forever will be. We're immobile. There's the kingdom. We can't get in. And the second symptom is our infernal blindness. We're even more blind than the poor old man walking down the street with his glasses on because at least he can feel there's something there in front of him. But here's the kingdom of God set before us. Moses said, here is life. I said it before you. Here's the gospel proclaimed to all men in every nation under heaven. Here's the gate to the kingdom of God right in front of us. There it is. We've heard it preached a million times, but, but in Adam we're none the wiser. We're that guy I talked to yesterday. We're blind. The, the same thing wrong with the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness is the same thing wrong with us. It's, it's like we're colorblind. We're colorblind. We can, a colorblind person can look and can see a table. They can see a chair. But there are certain colors, certain resonating frequency of colors that they just literally cannot see. That's us. Except we can see the colors of the earth, but we can't see the color of the glory of Christ. It's there, it's hitting our eyeballs, it's reaching our brains, but we don't have the faculties to perceive it. Somebody can stand outside of my office and open the scriptures, expound it, show us Jesus, lay out his glories like an all-you-can-eat free buffet, but we don't know, and we can't hear, and we won't get it, and we can't see, because we're blind to his glories. Those are the symptoms, but the disease is killing us, and it will kill us, because there's only one cure to go back to start over, to be born again. And I'm with Nicodemus. That is just as preposterous today as it was then. We can't do that. Can you do that? Can we put up a flow chart here of how we're going to accomplish that tonight? We must be born again, and we are helpless to re-beget ourselves. This is not good. That's the regeneration mandate. That's point two. We must be born again, and we're helpless to rebegin ourselves. Now, I know you're like, oh my goodness, are you going to leave me with this wonderfully encouraging word like that? But we have to stop before proceeding to the third point, the mechanism of regeneration, how it actually happens according to this passage. We'll pick that back up next time. But I want to close with just a, a practical word about what that means. And the reason it's okay to stop here, I had to justify myself why it's okay to stop here. Because it's okay because the scriptures confront us with this over and over and over with our fallen, desperate condition. It's something that God wants us to truly absorb. And not just like take a sponge and dip it in real quick. I mean, just sit it in the bucket and let it sit there until every square inch of it is filled. That's, that's, that's what the New Testament would have us to do with this desperation of our fallen condition. And sometimes, I know, we just want to throw up our hands and say, enough, I get it. I mean, if you've ever read, if you've ever read sequentially through the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you're like, okay, I got it. God's mad. I'm a sinner. I get it. But we don't get it. 
I don't care how long you've studied it or how much you've thought about it. We don't. We haven't absorbed all that there is to absorb about how desperate we were. And the less we understand how lost we were, the less we appreciate the glory of our redemption. There's something, there's like a principle of the more hopeless our cause, the more glorious our redemption. Right? Think about this. Remember the flood of 93? Certain towns in Illinois, they knew it was coming. They knew the river's rising. You know, Johnny Cash song, it's still rising, nine feet and rising. It's coming. It's still raining. We've got to get out of here. The levee hasn't broken, but it's looking bad. Buses come through. They pick everybody up. They take them to safety. Guess what? Those people didn't make front page news, those bus drivers. Nobody even hears about them, right? Because the people weren't in imminent danger. They, they weren't hopeless yet. And water was coming, but they were okay. But the people, when the water, when the levee breaks and the house is washed away and the guy's sitting on his bathtub upside down waving for the helicopter and somebody swoops down and snatches him away, now that's, that's glorious, isn't it? That's the stuff that gives you the tingles and says, wow, that's amazing. That, that's just ingrained into us. And so, so as long as in our minds we are the people, the floods come in, and I'm going to go ahead and take my escape now and it's okay. Then that's sort of that's the reciprocal understanding of our that's that, that's also our appreciation for Christ. Yeah, I'm glad he did it. It was good. I don't want to get washed away in the flood. So so we have to labor to identify our helpless cause with the guy who's seconds from being a goner. Or who already was a goner. That's it. We were already dead under the water and we were snatched out, right? Just to just to grasp. That, we're not talking about Nicodemus. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. Here's the kingdom of God in front of us. And Jesus would have said to us that day, you can't go in. You, not only can you not go in, you can't even see it. Unless you're born again. And we say, I can't do that. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. There's nothing I can do. That thing that, I, that, that is the supreme end for my whole existence is right there. I can't touch it. I can't see it. It's cut off. And, and, and my destiny is to be eternally consumed by worms that are never happy with what they've consumed already in this thick darkness and the fires of hell. That's, that's us. I mean, that's desperation, isn't it? What would Moses have felt, though, if God takes him up to Mount Pisgah and he's there to die. And God says, you know what, Moses? Change your mind. Go on in, buddy. What, what kind of overwhelming joy would Moses have felt knowing he had no right in the promised land? He had absolutely no right. He should have died on the mountain. He should have died a long time ago. He should have died on the mountain. He thought he was going to die. He was prepared to die. At the last moment, God says, go on into the promised land. Enjoy its fruit. That's us. Except even ten times different. That's us. Because we're not just enjoying the fruit of a piece of land over in the Middle East. We're enjoying the glories of Christ forever. And, man, if, 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 if we're not one of these people... I know I'm over my time, but... You, you sometimes meet people like C.J. Mahaney. This is, a, this is a pastor of Southern Grace Churches who, I swear, he cannot mention the gospel without breaking down. And I'm, I'm not that guy, but, but there's something about that that makes me realize he has understood 
the depth of his helplessness in a way that I haven't. Because just the quick thought that bounces off his head is overwhelming to him how helpless he was, how desperate the state of his soul was. That's why somebody like Newton can write a song that touches us 400 years later every single time you hear it. Amazing Grace, right? He originally wrote, Saved a worm, worm like me. Here's a man who, by the grace of God, understood his helpless, desperate condition because he lived it out in the flesh. But brethren, we are no less evil and desperate than John Newton. We just have practiced it differently. We haven't been slave captains, but we have shaken our fists at God. We don't deserve to go up to the top of Mount Pisgah and look at the promised land. We deserve to be sunk in the, in the Jordan River forever. And yet, here he says, come, dine with me forever. Welcome to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Just, just labor this week. I, I won't keep saying it. Just, just labor this week to mull over as the cow chews the cud. I couldn't see. I couldn't enter the kingdom. I needed to be born again, and I was completely helpless to do it. It's been a sovereign work of God. It's great to be a Calvinist. <laughs> because I love, love, not what I have done to beget myself, but what God has done apart from me to, to bring me into His kingdom and give me new birth. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, I, know, I know that we don't. I know, you're probably, <laughs> I know you're probably sitting there saying, you still don't get it, Ryan. You still don't get it. You still don't don't know what I did for you. You still don't understand the depths of your helplessness. And I don't, Lord. And I know that everybody else here doesn't either. It's, it's a weird prayer. But God, I pray that you would... Father, would you help us to, to glimpse and taste in a way that you allowed somebody like John Newton or the Apostle Paul to say he was the chief among sinners and a servant of Jesus. Lord, would you help us to taste our our helplessness and desperation apart from Jesus as you allowed them to, so that we can then turn and revel and rejoice in the identity that we now have in Jesus by your sovereign mercy and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.